I'm Dean Murdoch, and this is Amazing Places. Welcome to another episode of Amazing Places. I am delighted to welcome back my first guest that I had on the podcast. That's Dr. Teal Phelps Bondroff. Hi, Teal. Hey, how are you doing? I'm great. Thanks so much for coming back. It's a pleasure. Now, am I your first returning guest? Uh, actually, surprisingly, no. I've had Travis Patterson on twice. Oh, I missed uh, one of those then. Okay. Well, in that case, I'll have to uh, aspire to a third visit then, perhaps. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you can best Travis. I'm thrilled to have you back. I, the topic we're going to get into today is probably not uh, the most inspiring, but it is something that I think has become, that we're all becoming increasingly aware of and is, is having considerable impact on, on our lives and those of our family members and, and friends. And that's the topic of, of loneliness. So as we enter this holiday season, people are going to have to start making some changes to what they might normally do to celebrate in whatever way they normally do, uh, in that they've got to stick to their immediate household, uh, no extended family or friends coming over. And even more impactful, I think, for those who live alone is that they may be celebrating the holidays alone. As we head into these dark days of winter, I think can have a particularly challenging effect on your, your mental well-being. So uh, I wanted to bring you in because I know this is a subject that you're really interested in as well. Let's talk about loneliness. I mean, I've been really interested in it for a number of years, and I will admit that I'm just still learning about it. It's one of those areas where there's so many different factors. You've got psychological factors, you've got community factors, and then there's actually physiological impacts of loneliness. So it's, it's one of those areas where there's been a lot of emerging research, and particularly in the most recent years. But basically, what the research is saying is not only is being lonely have a you know, profound psychological impact on someone, but actually impacts our physical health and can actually damage our, our political structures and lead to the rise of authoritarianism or totalitarianism in some cases. So it's, it can have a really real impact on our, on our society and ourselves. Researchers have found that huge numbers of people are lonely. You know, we're talking about as many as 50% of Americans in a, in a 2018 study, which, which is very high. And you know, you've got maybe one in four younger folks or, or out in, in British Columbia here, the numbers from a Vancouver Foundation in 2017 found that one in seven residents felt lonely often or almost always. And, and that number goes up significantly when you're looking at people with lower incomes or younger people. One thing that's really interesting is we often think about um, loneliness as being a problem for, for elderly folks who might live alone or who may be less connected with people. But increasingly what the research is finding is that it's younger people who are or, or more lonely or who suffer more from loneliness. Um, it seems that um, older folks are more resilient to loneliness and maybe perhaps aren't impacted as much by the social media paradox, but uh, it's impacting young people and, and everybody really in different ways, of course. And so this is such a big problem that the United Kingdom actually had a minister of loneliness. Um, in 2018, um, Theresa May created the minister of loneliness. So this isn't just sort of a, a side you know, problem we can, we can ignore. It's, it's very real. And I think it fundamentally comes down to the fact that we're social animals. And that when we isolate ourselves, everything becomes problematic. You know, whether that's increased stress hormones, um, increased uh, propensity for depression. But the statistics around loneliness are, are, are significant. So it's comparable to smoking a pack a day. It's comparable to being um, obese, to not exercising, to having you know, heart disease. So these are, are serious physical impacts of loneliness. 
And those, of course, then spill throughout society. It's incredible that it's not just your mental well-being, that, that your state of mind, but it actually has a, a physical implication for you. There, you can sort of see these factors piling up, right? So if someone is, is isolated and lonely, maybe they eat more and don't exercise as much. So then you have other factors piling on. Um, some of the research I was looking at, um, actually just over breakfast today, was looking at like stress hormones. So when people are lonely, you know, because we're social animals, when you're lonely or isolated, you're going to be more stressed. And stress hormones can pump you up and get you all energized. But if you, are, if you have sustained stress hormones over time, it's not good for your health. But similarly, you know, if, you're, if you're depressed, if you're lonely, you might you know, be more likely to be depressed and make unhealthy choices. Um, and then there's, there's all of these aspects kind of linked together. It's interesting you point out that younger people are reporting loneliness and, and you attribute that in part to um, social media. But I think what's particularly troubling about that is that it doesn't equip them with the resilience that you described among the older population, because as they age, they're not going to pick up those social connection skills that the older adults would have. And therefore, this is just going to be perpetuated or, or exacerbated as they get older. An important thing to note is there's a difference between loneliness and isolation, right? So someone who volunteers to be a forest fire watcher on one of those little towers in the mountains isn't necessarily lonely, they're isolated. Um, and so, you know, the lo loneliness is, is a lack of intimate connection with people. And, and that is the difference, right? So you can be isolated, but you have a friend that you talk to once a month and have these amazing conversations with, and, and it, it satisfies that need for social contact and, and intimate social contact. Um, and, but you, and you'd be surrounded by people and still incredibly lonely because you lack that, that intimate contact. And I think that's what I, I'm seeing in the, the readings that I'm doing that are particularly impacting young people. Um, so it might, it might be, you know, people who, the other aspect too is if you've, you've lived for a long time, you've developed coping mechanisms, right? Um, if, you're, if you know that you're starting, you're starting to feel lonely, maybe you'll go and reach out to your friends or maybe you will you know, pick up a book or, or find some way of kind of distracting yourself. But if you have fewer coping mechanisms, then you might you know, kind of, create these kind of positive feedback loops. If you're lonely, you're maybe less social, you're maybe physically, you're, you're um, confrontational towards people around you. And then of course, they're less likely to want to hang out with you. And then as a result, you become more lonely and it kind of spirals. And this is actually one of the reasons why I think you're seeing these rise is the attraction to fringe online communities, right? So you have someone who's desperate for a community and suddenly there's a group of, of QAnon supporters or a fringe conspiracy group, and they're able to create a community for you. And they reinforce what you believe, and they validate your experience. And so suddenly you're part of this community and you become trapped. And um, this is like one of the reasons why you see you know, great scholars like Hannah Arendt talking about loneliness being integrally linked to totalitarianism. When you take people, you isolate them, you then saturate them with an ideology and they can't go back or they have trouble going back and it becomes sort of engrossed in this, this um, they get pilled as it were, the language of the, of the fringe, you know, QAnon movements and things. They get pilled and then it's hard for them to go back because everything, uh, the, the world they're in, is, it reinforces itself. I think that partly what's at play here is that feeling of, of loneliness and removing, you become increasingly removed from your social connections which starts to breed this sense of, of distrust that you don't have faith in, in your fellow human beings. And therefore, you start to adapt these kinds of um, notions that are often at play in those, in those fringe groups like QAnon, where you know, they're reinforcing this idea that they really are out to get you. 
that there really are these networks of nefarious organizations or individuals that are trying to do harm to you. And so your sense of, of distrust that's bred by your loneliness, you're in the right state of mind. And it just, like, as you said, continues to be reinforced by engagement with those groups. Well, and it's someone to blame, right? The world is a random place. Bad things happen to people, which is too bad. Um, it's unfortunate. But there isn't always, and very seldom, is a sinister cabal of globalists behind it. But it helps to think that, right? So, rather, so you know, when someone gets pilled into something like QAnon, they, they go from being someone who's lonely, who's isolated, who, who is not feeling connection with people, to the hero of a story, the hero of an epic story in their mind of, of, of hero, online heroes fighting against globalists who are kidnapping children for adrenochrome and, and you know, all the other sort of you know, things that flow from it. And so it seems much more appealing. But then on top of all that, you have these ready-made friends. You go on there, you make some sort of inflammatory statement, and suddenly you're, you're in the echo chamber, and it reinforces your beliefs, and you actually shut off your critical capacities, too. If you think about you know, the kind of meaningful conversations you've had with intimate friends, you're talking about things that challenge you, that challenge your core beliefs, that make you think. If you're not having those conversations, you kind of shut off your cognitive capacities and you just receive information and you become sort of infused with the ideology. You actually stop critically evaluating reality. And you can see this having an impact on the real world, right? So if people are familiar with the Pizzagate story, a gentleman went and shot up uh, or threatened to shoot up a pizza parlor because he thought there were children being kidnapped in the basement. It was a one-story building. This was the internet um, basically reinforcing delusions. And there's, there, we have people who have been elected to the American office in the last election who have been sharing content from these, these kinds of fringe movements. So it's very worrisome. And it, it translates into real action of people, um, you know, a lot of Americans with guns doing things that are not very responsible. We can see at, at the extremes how, how it begins to, to, to fester in society and have a real impact. And I think in the U.S. in this last election and probably the one before it, uh, presidential elections, we've seen that begin to manifest in the mainstream, that it is actually having uh, a tangible impact on the way people subscribe to these ideologies and breeding these more extreme versions. There is a very real risk that this will continue to erode the uh, public discourse and contribute to people's much more extreme views uh, from their ideological perspective. So yeah, I wanted to shift a little bit into what are some of the things we can do to address that. And, and, I, and I thought kind of on two levels, as individuals, what are we able to do? Uh, and then as a society, looking at things that government can do, local government can do, um, how do we begin to, to construct these networks to connect people again? Yeah, I think that's, that's, that's the big question, right? What was really interesting, you know, we talked a bit about moments ago about this idea of positive feedback loops and some of the literature is, is really disconcerting where they say that you know putting people together it doesn't just work you need to actually uh, do like cognitive behavioral therapy to, to break these these aspects down and that's that's worrisome but i still think there's a lot of there's a role for individuals to play in this in this um in this world i don't think that you know the, the solution can't just be you know therapy medication in this case because we have to be able to build connections between people in other ways uh, I have noticed myself that the more time I spend on Zoom calls um, and talking to people, it does impact the way I interact with humans when I actually bump into them in the street or the supermarket. You almost have to remember, relearn how to, to communicate in person. Uh, one of the things I was reading about the other day was Zoom fatigue. So I've been spending a lot of time on Zoom. And so it's not that I'm not talking to people during the day, 
but there's been a lot of really interesting research looking into things like Zoom fatigue. You know, so right now we're talking over Zoom and we're looking at each other in the face directly, right? The way that you communicate on Zoom is you, you, you look into your camera, you communicate with the person or you stare at yourself, which we often tend to do as well. Um, <laughs> I would never do that. Right, or, or someone's multitasking, right? You're at a meeting and you're also checking your email and you're, you know, you're scrolling through Twitter um, and all these aspects lead to Zoom fatigue. And it makes, you, know, you want to have a meaningful conversation with someone over Zoom, so you're, you're connecting with them. When we're talking to people in, in person, we don't spend 35 minutes staring at them in the face. You know, we, we look off and enjoy the view, right? We're gonna have a, a glass of, sea, uh, of cider at sea cider. We're gonna look at the mountains and the, the orchard around us. We might occasionally glance at the other person. Um, so that's been an interesting aspect, aspect of how these tools that connect us may also, um, may also cause you know, problems or may just may challenge communication. I know one of my challenges is um, I get excited and jump on the end of someone's sentence. And because of the delays with, with online communication, I end up interrupting people way too much. And that's something I'm definitely working on. But you know, maybe it means picking up the phone when the communications are a bit more clear, where you don't have to stare at the person, um, or you, know, you don't even have to put on, you don't even have to change out of your pajamas, right? You can have the conversation with someone over the phone. And I think if you notice how you communicate over Zoom or Skype, and you compare that to talking to someone on the phone, it's definitely different. We do interact differently because we don't have those visual cues. And another thing I've been trying to work on is when I do bump into people outside in public, um, you know, waiting for in line at the supermarket or I've just cycling the other day and bumped into a friend, communicating with your eyes more. You know, if you're wearing a mask, so much of our expressions in our mouths and I, you never know if your joke landed, right? Um, or you never know if that person is, is agreeing with what you're talking about. And I find myself using my eyebrows more and, and I already gesticulate too much with my hands, but gesticulating more with my hands just as a way of changing my body language, which would otherwise be covered by the lower part of my face. I don't know, have you found any ways that you've changed your communication over um, the course of COVID? Uh, I think the mask thing, communicating when your half of your face is covered has been challenging. And I have found that you look for the smile lines around people's eyes to make sure that you know, you're, you've got a, a positive um, engagement with somebody. It, you definitely have to listen a lot more carefully as you've got two muffled voices trying to hear each other, particularly if it's in an sp outdoor space, which it often is. Mm. Yeah, being able to get to a space where you can, can keep that distance between yourselves in the fresh air. And when it's raining and cold, it's not as desirable to do, but I think that's a big one in terms of keeping that connection with someone mm -hmm. who's outside of your, your household. I saw some really interesting tips coming, one from our, our MLA, uh, Lana Popham, who was suggesting that you call and, and organize a movie date virtually. So you'd each watch a movie and then you could get on Zoom and talk about it afterwards. Uh, my son tried out an app called Netflix Party where you can actually start the same content at the same time and you can message each other back and forth through that platform while you're watching it. So kind of fun ways to, to try and keep those connections. You can't do your normal games night or movie night with your, with your friends, but there are virtual ways to make that happen. And there's lots of virtual gaming platforms too. Like one of the things I, I, I did my grad school overseas and my good friends I grew up with playing Dungeons and Dragons and we'd game every weekend. I hadn't, I didn't talk to them. Well, I didn't game with them for almost a decade until we realized that there's all these online platforms where you can connect and you can go and do a first person shooter together, or you can play a strategy game online. Uh, we had a game of cards against humanity a couple months ago online, which was just bonkers. 
Um, and yeah, and the movie night, uh, movie night was fun. I, I tried doing one of those without the software where we just went on Skype and pushed play at the same time for Labyrinth for Halloween. And we spent half the time trying to queue up the videos because they one kept going fa- I don't know why one was going faster than the other. But, you know, hey, um, the other thing I've noticed, and this is um, hopefully it doesn't have a profound or long lasting impact on human connection. But the first minute of meeting someone these days, I always end up discussing tech problems. And then we actually do a proper formal greeting. And I'm, I'm worried that that's going to impact my when I'm meeting people in public, I'll start buffering for a minute and, you know, <laughs> I think I'm muted for the first 20 seconds of a conversation, you know, whatever it is. And if that's at a certain point that might uh, trickle over into the, into the real, the real interpersonal communications. In addition to some of these tools that we can uh, undertake as individuals, and I think we are starting to get better at it as a society that's coping with having to remove ourselves from each other's immediate presence. Mm there are longer term things that we're going to need to to figure out and and not just during a pandemic but as we begin to realize whatever the new normal is going to look like there will still be significant portions of the population who are going to be isolated who are not going to be regularly part of the community and connecting with with folks this existed before the pandemic and i think it will probably exist after the pandemic what are some of the things we can be doing as a society? What, what can governments take on? What can NGOs take on? How do we begin to, to build these networks to connect people so that they don't find themselves isolated? Um, one of my favorite ones is, and I think it's integral, is that we need social planners. You know, we spend so much effort in municipalities designing infrastructure. You have so many planners making sure that the roads are laid out in an effective or efficient way. Um, and, and so much effort goes to planning the physical infrastructure of a city, but we forget that people live in that city. And that's kind of the important thing, right? Um, you, a city with no people is um, a nice piece of architecture or art, but it, it, cities are to be lived in. And so I think every municipality needs to have one or more social planners so that we're thinking about how humans interact with the spaces we're creating. You know, when we have road planners, too often the goal is efficiency, efficiently moving vehicles around the city. but then, of course, you know, you were just mentioning how it's hard to understand someone when they're wearing a mask if you're in a busy location. Uh, it, it's really the length of time that you have a conversation with a person you meet on the street on a busy street versus a quiet street is shorter, right? Um, I bumped into a friend yesterday on Quadra, and so we had a quick chat on the side of the road, but it wasn't very long because the road was noisy, and so we couldn't get into any sort of meaningful communication. Whereas if you're in a quiet park or you're walking around a lake, you're going to have a longer conversation with someone. So in this way, things like noise pollution directly impact how humans interact, the length and the quality of conversation you have with someone. You just imagine if you can't understand someone or you're having difficulty hearing them, it's not the time to bring up a deep existential question. You know, it's not the time to, to share an intimate uh, private secret or, or something that you'd like to, to get off your chest. It's a time to move into a quieter location. This is one of the reasons why I'm, I'm passionate about placemaking, which is designing spaces to foster connections between people. We don't often have opportunities to bump into strangers. Now, these days, it's more difficult with COVID. So, you know, obviously, there's that factor. But too often, our spaces are designed to move people through them and not to collect people in a casual way that's going to bump them into people they've never met before, to strangers. Public transit's a really good example where you'll, you'll meet people from different walks of life who you may never interact with. But other than that, there are very seldom opportunities to meet strangers. I think we can fix that with placemaking. So creating vibrant public spaces that people want to be in is going to create those kinds of connections between people who are very different.
and that that, that I think improves one's life in a meaningful way. Um, I think one of the things that would be interesting for people to reflect on who are listening is how many friends, close friends, they have outside their age demographic. Um, for example, my, my partner and I moved here from, uh, from Europe and previous to that to Calgary. And we had a, a board game night at our house a couple of years ago. And I think it was two tables going, there's about 14 people here. It was quite impressive, the pre-COVID times, of course. And no one was from Victoria. Every single person at the event place had come from another city because we hadn't fostered connections with people who grew up in Victoria because they tended to rely on their, their close friend network. Whereas we had a whole diverse group of people from Ontario and Alberta and from further afield. And I, that to me was indicative of the fact that we need more placemaking to connect people, especially people who are different. To build on that, the question I would ask is how many friends do you have that are 20 or 30 years younger or older than you or come from a totally different country or come from a totally different socioeconomic background than you? And if the answer is none or very few, then you're not meeting strangers. You're not meeting people who are different than you. And your life is less rich as a result. I think you've really struck upon one of the challenges. I mean, our urban planning and the, the design that we've set out for ourselves in, in major centers in, in, you know, obviously smaller, more rural communities would have different challenges in terms of isolation and loneliness. But in the larger centers, we have built ourselves a, a, a metropolis or a sprawling labyrinth of uh, subdivided communities, which didn't account for places for people to gather. And, and we've seen, you know, even corner stores have disappeared for the most part. I mean, we're, we're now hearing calls for a return to corner stores because people don't want to go to the big stores during a time when they shouldn't all be in, in a small space all of those things have, have disappeared from the landscape. And so there's not a natural place for people to get together and, and find, find places to, to have a conversation or spend time together. We're very fortunate, I think, we, you and I both live in Saanich. We have a lot of green space in Saanich. There's a lot of opportunity to gather, but often that requires a, at least a bike ride, maybe a car ride in order to get to those spaces if you live in the suburban environment. So what do we do in order to, and you and I are both part of the Greater Victoria Placemaking Network, so we spend a lot of time thinking about these things. Where are the opportunities to create those points of congregation, where we can create those interest points for people to actually bump into each other and have uh, an impromptu conversation? Yeah, oh, and that's, I think there's two aspects to this. There's one aspect of placemaking that physically brings people together. Um, and this is one that, that that's a general feature of placemaking you know, pre, during a pandemic or not during a pandemic. And obviously one that has to be done safely. But there's another aspect which allows people to connect with complete strangers completely indirectly. So I wanted to talk about kind of both of those. As you know, I'm very passionate about Little Free Libraries. And I've always described them as coral wreaths for community. Little Free Libraries are coral wreaths for community because you meet people at them and the conversations you fall into are not the same as a kind of conversation you would have with a typical stranger. I'm a chatty person. I will talk to people in line at the grocery store. And I'm trying to get better at asking people useful questions and actually having real conversations. I've started asking people about their podcasts or what they're watching, or what they're reading in line. And, but it's, it's awkward because people aren't really expecting those kinds of conversations in line for the grocery store. And, that, and I respect that, of course. But at Little Free Library, you're both there looking for books. You have a shared interest that, that you know you're both interested in books. And so you have these conversations with people that are, that are more more meaningful, I find. I was down in James Bay, oh, five or six months ago, 
and I met a guy at Ruby's Little Book Nook on, on Toronto Street. And it turns out we're both reading exactly the same book. And we, so we had this like 20 minute conversation about like this weird feature of international relations. And I was with a total stranger. I still remember that conversation. It's been five months. I don't think I could remember a conversation I had with someone at the grocery store recently, but I definitely remember that one. So it's more meaningful. So you, the other thing I've noticed during pandemics is you can do placemaking in such a way as to connect people not quite as directly as that. So um, up in uh, Royal Oak, there was a little free library, the height of the first wave of the pandemic, where it was a notebook and you could fill in the front of the notebook if you needed help with something. And on the back of the notebook, you could say if you could offer help with something. So it's creating a connection between people. And there's another one down on King's Road where someone just posts a dad joke every day. But these are kind of indirect ways. And then, you know, one thing I've noticed around town is people are also doing sort of smaller forms of placemaking in their front yards. They're hanging hearts out of trees, mm-hmm. installing fairy doors. Um, I've been really excited about this um, Santa Chisuk rock hunt. Have you encountered this before? No, I haven't heard this. Oh, this is, this is brilliant. So people paint rocks and then they leave them around town and you find them and you put them somewhere else and you might share a picture of them on the Facebook group. Uh, my partner and I did a hike around Thetis Lake the other day and we found two rocks with eyes painted on them at different points in the lake. Someone had clearly done the same loop as us and was leaving painted rocks and you take a picture of them and you post on the Facebook group and the person in the Facebook group who painted them gives you a thumbs up. You're connecting with people who you will never see again, um, but you're able to sort of bring joy to their lives. And in, it, the, the term I like to use is whimsy. You're being whimsical and you're, you're, mm-hmm. you're softening the hard edges of the city. I think that's, that's one thing we can do. There's someone in Fairfield who is putting up lost signs, like lost cat signs, but for like completely random objects, like lost unicorn, uh, lost ring from uh, Lord of the Rings, uh, lost elephant. And they're all sort of comically written. And so you're kind of walking along the street, you pause at at a electrical pole and suddenly there's a, you know, someone's lost their invisible dog or something. (laughs) And it just makes you chuckle and you move on with your day. I was thinking about Christmas lights this year. That's been one that, you know, suddenly lights were going up in November right after Remembrance Day. The kids and I have wandered around the neighborhood just trying to spot the different things that people are doing. And as you might expect, the displays have gotten much bigger this year for those who participate. And it's kind of fun to check out the neighbors where, you know, they've put up a little thing where they normally wouldn't do something, or maybe they've made something, handmade something that they've hung out, but is really just an opportunity to, to pull out something that you had in the, in the attic or in, in the basement and put out your display as a way of saying, you know, we're all here together. We can't maybe be together, but I'm going to do something that you're going to want to look at. You can do the same thing at your place. And it encourages people like my family, does regularly go out and, and check out the displays. And I know people drive around to do that. I, I'm not encouraging people to get in their cars and start driving, but it is a fun activity when there's not really anything else going on. And it's a way to feel connected to those folks, even though you don't meet them necessarily, you probably aren't going to talk to them. You might if you're out for a walk, but it's just that sense that we're all in this together, that we're all doing something to, to celebrate, to recognize that we're a community and we need some warmth during these very cold days. One of the things I've noticed is cycling infrastructure and cycling is actually a great way to create connectivity between people. I have, I will chat with people while waiting for the light about usually the weather and the cycling conditions because the lights aren't that long. 
but I've actually arranged business meetings when I was stuck in a, a bike traffic jam in air quotes uh, in downtown Victoria with a friend. I go, hey, we're supposed to meet tomorrow. When do you want to meet? It's, what's fascinating is I, I challenge anyone to think of a time they had a a polite and friendly conversation with the vehicle next to them at the lights, with the people in the vehicle next to them at the lights. But, I, but they can also be, you can easily think of a situation when you've had a nice conversation with a fellow cyclist waiting at a light because you don't have that glass wall between you, because you, you both have a shared experience and because you're in a space, hopefully a safe, protected bike lane that lets you have that conversation. So I think that's a fascinating one. I've had exactly that experience as well with Lisa Helps, the mayor of Victoria. We actually organized a podcast interview because we ran into each other. I was biking, she was walking, and we happened to see each other and stop and have a quick chit chat. And that inspired an episode of a podcast. And for those who haven't checked it out, you can find it. It's just a couple episodes back before this one. Great conversation with, with the mayor of Victoria. And we talked about exactly this, this kind of conviviality of the infrastructure. Yeah, well, it, exactly. And I think that that really typifies to me how infrastructure changes people's interactions. You, If you're in a freeway, you're moving too quickly to even think about interacting with the cars around you. But even in a slow moving street, you're not talking to the people. It's harder to pull your car over to the side and have a conversation with someone. You're, you're feeling stressed out, like other cars behind you are going to pile up and you'll create a traffic jam. But it's not difficult to pull your bike to the side of the road and have a chat with people. Um, someone up around the corner from us um, by Peacock Hill Put up a board in front of their house where you can just leave little inspirational notes on. You can just, you know, tack a little inspirational note on the board. And it became sort of a community hub for communications. A couple of the other ones that I liked were chalk. So we went actually around and distributed chalk to little libraries. So people would just do chalk drawings. And there was some, uh, my favorite story with that is a couple of my neighbors were trying one of these, um, these foreshortening perspective chalk drawings. Have you seen these? Where if you stand in a circle, have, yes. it looks like the animal's coming off the wall. So they were in the park doing a Pikachu version of that. And it took them like three, and a, three to four hours. <laughs> it was really fun to sort of wander by every few hours and check on them and see how they were doing. And that was you know, kind of an exciting way of, of interacting with neighbors, letting them do art. And also just express yourself too. Relieve a lot of stress by expressing our artistic abilities. And so sometimes that might be writing a blog, but it also might be like you said, putting up lights or maybe installing one too many inflatable uh, snow people on your front yard. So I, I just want to quickly uh, touch on the other things that governments may be able to do, because we've talked a lot about individuals. We've talked about some community changes, design changes that, that we'd want to uh, encourage local governments to, to consider. But there are things that can happen at a, at a federal or provincial level that would, would help to address uh, elements of loneliness. And I think that we need to see more of it take place. But a lot of it from my experience working uh, at a provincial level is about seeding communities with a, a small amount of funding in order to create those opportunities for people to get together. And it can be a, you know around a block party. Obviously, that's not something that happens during a pandemic. But it, it can be more creative and uh, like a virtual get together for, for people. Often around having these kind of quirky places where people can can gather. So it really does kind of come down to placemaking as one of the ways that communities can encourage gathering. And that's supported with small amounts of funding at a, at a provincial level. There's um, some serious funding that, that needs to take place in order to create opportunities for people who are isolated because they're unable to to get out, that there are access challenges for for their participation. And I think there's a lot of one, infrastructure improvements that would need to take place to facilitate that. But I think also 
we need to get better at delivering services for those folks so that they too can participate in community activities. And, and that will take some serious investment and some thoughtfulness about how we make sure that we're reaching out to those folks and enabling them to have uh, access that, that you and I might regularly enjoy under normal circumstances. The city of Victoria has a program called the Migrate Neighborhood uh, yeah. Grants, and they funded our little library project to the tune of $5,000, but they also have tiny micro grants of $50. And it takes, it's one page to fill out. It's incredibly easy form. At the end of your event, you send them a picture of the event. That's all the, uh, the feedback that they need. And it's great to have these low barrier grants because there's something slightly different than when you, you go up to your neighbors and say like, let's start a block party versus I have funding from the city to start a block party. There's something validating about that. Even if it's a tiny amount of money, it, it, it gives you the support of the city when you go and talk to your neighbors. And, you know, I, I think you and I, neither of us have a problem knocking on a stranger's door, but sometimes it's, that's a challenge for folks. And so having a small grant in hand to say, Hey, City of Victoria's giving me money for a pizza party so we can plan how we can make our street better. Do you want to come over Tuesday for some free pizza? I think that's, that's a fantastic aspect. One of the projects that we did in our building over the summer was movie nights. So we have a, a scout hall next to our building and I got a, a relatively cheap computer projector plugged into my laptop and we were watching films projected on the wall of the, of the scout hall. Great outdoor activity, nice physical distancing because you can be outside. We're talking like old school, big drive-in theater style. Mm -hmm. wall. And it was a great way of connecting with neighbors because one of the challenges I found, we live in an apartment building with 88 units. When you meet your neighbors, it's hard to have conversations that aren't about the building because that's one of your shared things that you have. But you can only complain about the deer that's eating your community garden for so long or the issues with the pipes until it becomes just unnecessarily stressful. So one of the things I was trying to do with, with movie nights was to foster connectivity between people so they didn't necessarily have to talk, but they could just be surrounded in a, at a safe distance with their neighbors. And they could talk if they wanted to, but they could also just watch David Bowie or Footloose or, or what have you. I think supporting um, NGOs and community organizations is also key. There's some great volunteer organizations here in the, in the CRD that create these connections with people. You can sign up for a volunteer organization that will you know, connect you with a senior in your community and you can play cards once a week, you know, and maybe if you're missing your grandparents because they live, you know, on the other side of the country, that's a great way of you getting meaningful conversations with someone who's a different generation than yours. And that's actually an aspect I really like. I'm really passionate about uh, fostering intergenerational communities because too often we, we tend to stay in our own sort of demographic bubble, but you don't really have the same kinds of conversations with your friends on the hockey team than you do with your, your 75 year old grandparents. That, that to me is something that governments can do is you can also build communities that are intergenerational. You know, when we talk about affordable housing, we're not just talking about keeping people who might be at risk to homelessness off the streets. We're also talking about a young family can now live in a community that's slightly more established. You know, if all of your neighbors are in the same age group because you all can afford houses in that area, you're not going to be talking to people who are different than you. And that makes your life less rich. So it even comes down to planning decisions or, or macro level decisions around housing that, that will help foster connectivity between people and between people who are different. I think that's also key as well, because that's what challenges you, which keeps your brain thinking and keeps you learning new things is, is meeting different people, not just meeting people who are very similar to you. The, 
this holiday season, you may be getting together with the folks in your household, but uh, encouraging people to, to call a friend, to reach out to family members, organize that Zoom call or, or FaceTime conversation, at least keep those connections alive uh, while you can. And it does mean, as they keep saying, celebrating differently this year, but we know just how important it is to stay connected and, uh, and to keep people from feeling isolated. Teal, I want to thank you so much for spending the time. I appreciate so much the opportunity to check in with you and uh, the benefit of the research you've done on this topic. It's been so insightful. Thank you very much, Dr. Teal Phelps Bondaroff. Good talking to you. (laughs) This has been another episode of Amazing Places. I'm Dean Murdoch. Thanks for listening.